There is an ancient prayer by Anselm of Canterbury, who was a Benedictine monk living around 1100 AD, that asked God for this. He said, perfect what you have begun and grant me what you have made me long for. Perfect what you have begun and grant me what you have made me long for. Back in about 1996, a man by the name of Donald Miller, who was a professor at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, wrote a massive book called City of the Century, subtitled The Epic of Chicago and the Making of America. It traces Chicago from its earliest days as a desolate fur trading outpost to its emergence as a world-class city by 1900. And one of the last chapters is called If Christ Came to Chicago based on a book by that title written in 1894 by William Stead. It was a typically utopian 19th century idea, but one that still stirs the imagination. What if Jesus came to Chicago? What would he do? What would he say? Just to ask that question is to spawn a thousand others. Today's young people by the millions, I think, started asking a very similar question through bracelets that became popular a number of years ago with four capital letters on them, remember? WWJD. What would Jesus do? The idea of Jesus walking the earth today is both thrilling and provocative. And so tonight, I want to take us uh, this idea one step further and ask the next question. Does Jesus live in Duet? Now, if you live in another part of the Lansing area or even another state, insert your own city name in that question, but does Jesus live in DeWitt? Do we think it's possible that if Jesus were alive today that he would come to DeWitt? Probably next weekend for the Oxrose, I'm sure. Maybe not. But would the people of this community welcome Jesus? On that point, even if we answer no, we should remember that Jesus was rejected when he came to earth 20 centuries ago. Though society has advanced greatly in knowledge and sophistication, the hearts of men and women today haven't changed a whole lot. So our scripture tonight is a back door to the question that I'm asking. In Galatians chapter 5, Verses 19 through 26, we are invited to consider two very different ways of life. And here the Apostle Paul uh, contrasts two very different ways of life. One is called the acts of the sinful nature, or the works of the flesh. And it describes what life looks like without God. Or to say it another way, living by the flesh is what happens when we decide to go our own way. The other way of life is called the fruit of the Spirit, and it describes a life that's filled with supernatural power and it's dominated by qualities that could only come from God. And we're invited in this passage to consider the way that we are living. Which path are we following? Is it flesh or spirit? Is it life or death? Is it supernatural power? Or is it continual self-indulgence? As we will see, living by the flesh is natural. That's what comes natural to us. And even uh, easy in the sense that we're all sort of pulled in that direction. 
But if we want to live by the Spirit, we have some tough choices to make, and we have to make them every single day. But when we choose to live by the Spirit's power, something supernatural begins to happen. Does Jesus live where you live? The answer to that question depends on you. Let me read uh, beginning with verse 19. Here St. Paul says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, Paul says, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this long and discouraging list serves several purposes. A close examination reveals that the various sins that Paul mentioned here fall into four categories. There are the sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, uh, or uh, lustful pleasures, as one translation is sometimes called lewdness, describes a brazen attitude where we flaunt our sexual behavior in public and really don't care what anyone else thinks about that. Paul refers to this as kind of in a collective impurity. Second, uh, there are religious sins, idolatry and witchcraft. Idolatry is a very broad term that refers to anything good that becomes more important to us than God. That might be an unreasonable love of money or possessions or career or another person, but anything that becomes more important to us than God is an idol. Witchcraft is the translation of a Greek word that covers things like drug abuse and sorcery and black magic and reincarnation and voodoo, and some commentators have even suggested that it covers generally what we call the New Age movement today. But these are things that pull us away from the God of the Bible. Third, there are the social sins, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Hatred describes a, a deep hostility that distorts human relationships. Discord means that we just can't get along with people. Jealousy means that we want what somebody else has. Fits of rage means we lose our temper and then make excuses for it. Selfish ambition describes a person who wants more and more and more, and when, uh, when they finally have it, they are, still aren't satisfied. Dissension speaks of those who enjoy causing trouble. Factions are created by talented troublemakers. Envy's an ugly sin that says, I want what you have, and I wish that you don't ha didn't have it at all. Wherever these sins appear, human relationships get damaged or broken. And then fourth, there are sins of excess, drunkenness and orgies or wild parties. Drunkenness speaks not only of the abuse of alcohol, but it's dominating and destructive control of a person's life. Orgies or wild parties are get-togethers where there is often a combination of things like alcohol and exhibitionism and lowering of inhibitions and sometimes sexual immorality. And in verse 21, it's interesting that Paul adds the phrase, and the like, which means 
This list is only suggestive, it's not exhaustive. There are many other works of the flesh, but however long that list may be, these sins are obvious sins. And here's the point that he's making. Living by the flesh always produces bad results. And if we decide to leave God out of our life, we won't be able to hide the consequences forever. The Bible tells us that what's in our heart will be revealed. It will reveal itself in our life, for better or for worse, sooner or later. Everything that is covered, the scripture says, will one day be made plain. We can hide the flesh under a veil of religion and morality, but it's not going to stay hidden forever. The most important point to notice is that, is that these sins are the mark of a life away from God. When Paul says that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's referring to not just to one act, but to a way of life. In the end, you can, you can either have the things of this world, or you can have the kingdom of God, but you can't have both. The two are mutually exclusive. Adulterers and murderers and idolatries, he says, are not going to heaven. For that matter, those whose lives are characterized by hatred and envy won't be there either. While it's true that all of us fall into some of these sins at one time or another, true Christ followers feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we seek forgiveness and eventually we turn our hearts back to God. There, there is one sense in which inclusion or exclusion in the kingdom is our responsibility. We will often avoid the things of God because we love the things of the flesh, don't we? The scripture says that people love darkness more than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And those who miss out on the kingdom of God are in the end those in, who have chosen over time not to go there. Heaven will be the inheritance of every person who has God and the kingdom in their soul. I want you to notice verses 22 and 23. Paul says, but the Holy Spirit, here's the contrast, okay? He's now laid it all out in, in terms of what the world has to offer, what our human nature is going to take us to. But then he contrasts that with the, with the things of the Spirit. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and there is no law against any of these things. Basically, Paul's saying, you know what, folks? There is another way to live. And he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. These nine graces that he speaks of are like a cluster of ripe grapes. They're not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. They are simply the fruit. They come kind of as a package. When the Holy Spirit has free reign in our hearts, these graces are the supernatural result of God's work in us. And traditionally, these nine character qualities have been divided into three groups as well. First, there are three qualities that join us to God, love, joy, and peace. Love speaks of a kind of affection that reaches out to another person without regard to anything that might be received in return. Joy is optimism, even in difficult circumstances. And peace is contentment in spite of our circumstances. In the deepest, 
sense these graces come from God and they lead us back to God. The second group of qualities reaches out to those around us. That's patience, kindness, and goodness. Patience might be better translated um, by the traditional phrase, long-suffering. It speaks of courageous endurance over time in difficult circumstances. Kindness refers to having a gracious disposition toward other people, and goodness is simply love in action. The third group includes three qualities that describe our inner character, and that's faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness means something like dependability. The person with this quality keeps their word, they keep their promises, they keep the vows that they make. Gentleness is often translated meekness, which doesn't mean weakness, but rather power under God's control. It's the ability to respond with kindness even when we're provoked, even when we're tempted to blow our top. Self-control is having desire, our desires under God's control. It especially speaks to those moments of temptation when we want to go somewhere or do something or try something or look at something that we know would not be so good for us. It speaks also of those times when we break a relationship that we know is not leading us where God wants us to go. See, I find it helpful to compare the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Clearly, there is a huge difference between these two uh, categories, not just in their result, but in their origin. Fruit comes from life, and life comes from the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is only possible when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit that is within us. And to say it another way, we produce the works of the flesh naturally. But the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us by the Holy Spirit as we cooperate with him day in and day out. As we consider these two ways of life, it helps us to remember that the flesh only produces sin. It cannot manufacture a changed life. If we want the fruit of the Spirit, we can have it, but we have to ask God for it. We have to seek it. We have to yield ourselves to God in order to get it. But left to ourselves, what do we do? We produce the works of the flesh, don't we? Only when God enters our life do we discover the fruit of the Spirit. Well, this text closes with three verses that lay before us the challenge of rejecting the flesh and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Having shown us two very different ways to live, Paul now shows us how we can choose the right path every day. And his advice is simple, but it's not easy to follow. If you want the fruit of the Spirit, we can have it, but it will not come cheaply. So how do we get this fruit of the Spirit? Well, first of all, we need to keep the flesh crucified. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. One of the helpful commentaries that I read on this verse comes from John Stott, and he points out that this verse is quite different than Galatians 2.20 in in. 2.20, Paul says that we have been crucified with Christ, but here in 5.24, we do the crucifying. What does he mean by this? Well, when we come to Christ, we say to ourselves, you know what? I no longer want to live by the power of the flesh. 
I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of failure. I'm tired of compromise. I'm tired of living for myself. I don't want to walk in the path of sin any longer. By coming to Christ, we symbolically nail the flesh to the cross of Christ. And we make a decisive break with all of the sinful tendencies, and we say to our human nature, you know what, you don't rule me anymore. From now on, Christ is my master. That's what committing your life to Jesus Christ is all about. We take, as it were, a hammer and nail and nail those passions and desires of the human nature to the cross. And some of us, when we do that, we've, we've thought, that's it. Hey, we've done it. We, we thought we were done at that point with the sinful nature. But it doesn't always work that way. You know, crucifixion was a means of death that was deliberately designed to be very slow and agonizing. And sometimes a condemned person would hang on a cross for days before finally succumbing to death. The same is true with our human nature. Even though we crucify that human nature when we come to Jesus Christ, it's not always dead yet. Our real problem is that when the flesh calls to us, we like to go back to the cross take out a few of those nails and begin to take that enticing stuff back down from the cross. But that is precisely what we must not do. Once having crucified the flesh, we must nail it to the cross over and over again. This is part of what Jesus meant when he called the disciples to take up their cross daily and follow him. We have died to sin, but we have to keep making that commitment. The great reformer Martin Luther compared our human nature to a man's beard. He said, what happens when you shave on Monday? The beard grows back on Tuesday. If you shave on Tuesday, it grows back on Wednesday. If you stop shaving, even for a few days, soon you will have stubble everywhere on your face. And then Martin Luther says, crucifying the flesh is like a daily, like a daily shave. See, if we're going to follow Christ, we have to be brutal with the human nature. Too many of us like to take sin off the shelf, play with it a little bit, and then we, we wonder why we're tempted to give in. We make excuses for our behavior. We act surprised when more of our base desires start to take control of our words and deeds. But in essence, St. Paul is saying to us, stop wimping out. Stop making excuses. There must be ruthless and uncompromising rejection of sin. We must not go easy on ourselves. Don't pull the nails out. Instead, every single day, by the grace of God, we must take the hammer of faith and the nails of true conviction and hammer our sinful nature to the cross again. And once we've declared war on sin, there's no time to start opening negotiations on that. Then secondly, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. Look at verse 25. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. The phrase keep in step is a military term that describes a soldier who's standing in the ranks to his left, to his right, front and back, or a host of other soldiers, but his eyes are focused straight ahead on the commanding officer. And when the order to move is given, they step forward in perfect time, moving with fellow soldiers, following the lead of the commander. And wherever the commander goes, they follow. 
The soldier doesn't have to understand. He simply has to obey. And when the commander says, about face, turns and marches in the opposite direction. To be a good soldier, you must not lag behind. You must not go on ahead. You must keep in step as, you're, as you follow the leader wherever the leader goes. And it's really a kind of an image, a wonderful image of the Christian life. We are not called to understand everything that God has planned in our life. We'd, we'd like to know all that, but we are not called to understand everything about God's ways in this world. We don't need to know every detail of the master plan, and we don't need to know where we will even be tomorrow. Our only duty as a Christ follower is to get out of bed every day, stay in touch with God through prayer, and tell God that we're reporting for duty. And then we simply follow step by step wherever God leads us. Some days, God will march us through some green meadows and under blue skies, and we'll have stops for water and rest. But there will be other days in our life where there will be some cloudy skies, maybe even some deep valleys, maybe not even time to rest. Sometimes the call will come to venture even into the darkness where we must trust God to bring us safely into the light again. But day by day and step by step, we're always looking and listening and watching for where God is leading us. One day a man was talking to his friend, a stranger walked by and this guy said, the man has been in the army. How do you know that? I know a soldier by his walk. See, the world ought to know that we are following Christ by the way we live by the way we talk, by the way we act. And if people are shocked to discover that you're a Christian, then maybe you're following the wrong leader. Here's the third point. We need to keep our heart right toward others. Look at verse 26. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. The final verse in this passage remind us, reminds us how quickly we can fall into the comparison game. We want to walk in the Spirit and live by the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, not on the person to our left, not on the person to the right. We just need to keep looking at the Savior, and you know what? Things are going to work out. If we're looking at our friends for approval or envy, we're not looking at Jesus. If, we keep, if we're keeping our eyes on the Lord, then we won't have time nor the inclination to worry about anybody else. Keeping our eyes on Jesus means keeping the main thing the main thing. So as I come to the end of this message tonight, I'm struck with the thought that the fruit of the Spirit is available to all of us. No one needs to walk the path of this world. We all have a choice to make, and we must make that choice every day. And most of us make that choice probably many times a day. Will we walk in the way of the world? including all of the desires and producing the ugly works of the flesh and of our human nature? Or will we walk in the Spirit and in step, be in step with the Spirit of God, following the Spirit's leading moment by moment, allowing God to produce His fruit in us? I began this message by asking if Jesus lives in DeWitt, and I think we should expand that question just a bit. Does Jesus live in Lansing, and Holt, in Wacousta, and Grand Ledge, Bath, St. John's. But that's not even the real question. The real question is, does Jesus live in you?
You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. You are the only Jesus that some people will ever know. Does Jesus live where you live? The answer depends on you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for taking so lightly the awesome privilege of representing you in this world. For too long we have lived with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Help us to live so that no one can doubt our allegiance to you. And may our testimony be so clear that everyone can see that we are following you. And may those who watch us see Jesus in us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.